So Daniel chapter 2, verse 24. Then Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to execute the wise men of Babylon, and said to him, Do not execute the wise men of Babylon. Take me to the king, and I will interpret his dream for him. Arioch took Daniel and the, uh, to the king and at once said, I have found a man among the exiles from Judah who can tell the king what his dream means. The king asked Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, are you able to tell me what I saw in the dream and interpret it? Daniel replied, no wise man, uh, enchanter, magician or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he is asked about. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has shown the king, Nebuchadnezzar, what will happen in the days to come. Your dream and the visions that pass through your mind as you lay in your bed are these. As you are lying there, O king, your mind turned to things to come, and the revealer of mysteries showed you what is going to happen. As for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because I have greater wisdom than other living men, but so that you, O king, may know the interpretation and that you may understand what went through your mind. You looked, O king, and there before you stood a, a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, and its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. While you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver and the gold were broken into pieces at the same time and became like chaff on the threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace. But the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to other, another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it itself will endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of a mountain, but not by human hands. A rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true and the interpretation is trustworthy. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell prostrate before Daniel and paid him honour and ordered that an offering of incense be presented to him. Morning. This is odd, but it's good to be with you remotely. Um, Alistair Begg described what's happening as an increasing uh, wind against the sails, if the sails upon the ship of the church. But I want to use the language of temperature, not because it's so hot outside, but everybody, every Christian surely has noticed that the cultural temperature has been increasing over recent years and over recent decades. The attitude towards the church has changed quite dramatically and very quickly. Some years ago, you could say that uh, the attitude towards the church, at least uh, post-war, World War II that is, whether it be in England or in Europe, was positive. There was predominantly a gratitude towards the Christian heritage 
the hard work of men and women seeking to serve God in the fields of medicine or education or welfare or care. People would look back throughout society, whether they identified as a Christian or not, and would say and use such phrases as, we're a Christian nation, whether that be in the UK or in Europe or perhaps in some parts of the wider world. But, but something has changed in recent years and in recent decades. The, the wind of change has come against the church and that the temperature culturally has increased and, and every thinking Christian has noticed that, surely. Gratitude for the things of the past has been replaced by hostility to the message of the gospel. Christians are now seen as dangerous, what they believe is damaging. And so there's no place for Christians in society. Their beliefs should be kept private. They should not be given a public platform and their voice should not be heard in the public domain. There's a book that I commend to you by a writer called Stephen McAlpine. You can see it on the screen. It says this, Christians are now seen as the bad guys. Biblical ethics are not seen merely as laughable or outdated or repressed, but as shameful, harmful and repressive. And you can pick your topic, whether it be the topic of abortion, whether it be how truth is defined, if there is such a thing as truth at all. If it's on the topic of education or the whole issue around racism or even same-sex attraction or sexual ethics and identity, complex issues. But whatever Christians have to say from the Bible, they now need to be silenced and there's no place for them in the public domain. There's hostility to the message of the Lord Jesus Christ and the hope of the gospel held out in the church. And it's not just the hostility that I think that's caught Christians like me and others perhaps like you on the back foot it's the speed of change not just the temperature change and the hostility but the speed of change now in the modern world you can take a gadget like a mobile phone and you can share your newly held uh, reflection or thought or conviction or belief uh, with immediacy with a few clicks you can use a social media platform and it goes global no longer is a thought formed in the furnace of the academic setting and then passed down through generations. You can have a thought, you can have a conviction, you can have something you want to say that's on your heart and you can send it like wildfire globally. So it's not just hostility, it's also the speed of change. And if people don't like what you say, say Facebook don't like what you say or Twitter, if you come against their agreed uh, moral mindset, then they can delete what you say. So it feels a little bit like Big Brother and it's this hostility and speed of change that have really caught the church off guard. And when this temperature change happens, regardless of the generation, Christians often respond in a number one or number of these ways. That if the cost of standing for Jesus is too great, if the opposition is getting increasingly harsh and loud and strong and severe, then Christians are tempted to blend in. It's easier for me not to follow Jesus, so I'm just going to blend in and not say what I believe, whether that's at school or in the workplace. Or another Christian would say, uh, they're just not hearing me anymore, so I'm just going to get angry and make my point made more forcefully. Or other Christians can say, no, the heat is too much, I'm just going to withdraw. And the reason, as Alistair Begg said in the video, for us looking at the book of Daniel is not because he's written a book on it, but because... Daniel points to the faithfulness of God. 
Daniel was a wonderful picture, like the book of Esther as well, that we could have gone to, of what it means to live by faith in a hostile environment when everyone wants to silence you. When the uh, cultural temperature increases like a fire that we're going to see next week, a burning furnace. So we're going to spend just five weeks looking at the beginning chapters of the book of Daniel because we want to see afresh that God is always able and enables Christians to stand firm and to live by faith in him, regardless of whether it's the 6th century BC or the 21st century AD. So let's begin looking at some names, some dreams and a rock. So names, dream, rock. Look at these names. Um, point number one, Nebuchadnezzar was the king of Babylon. So it's the superpower of the day. And not once, but twice he journeyed from the capital of Babylonia to Jerusalem. In 587, we know that Jerusalem was uh, razed to the ground and he carried off most of its people into Babylon. But, but 10 years earlier, 10 years earlier, at the time of the book of Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar came, battled against Jerusalem and deliberately carried off 10,000 people who were the cultural influences of the day. Only 10,000 people on his first visit and he carried them back to Babylon. Daniel 1, if you flip back in your Bible, says there are 10,000 people. They won't choose arbitrarily. They weren't chosen at random. Nebuchadnezzar came and handpicked all of the leaders, the culture makers, the influencers, the thinkers, everybody that influenced society in terms of leadership. And he carried off those 10,000 people back to Babylon. It's a very, very clever strategy rather than of just uh, destroying everything in a nation that you come up against in war and battle, you could reap and plunder thoughts and influence, and then you can replant those people and influence great control and also have greater influence. It's a very effective strategy. You can see from chapter one that uh, literally these 10,000 people were uh, Babylonianized culturally. They were like sponges of water. They were like a pliable putty that you can make something from. Look at chapter 1, verse 4. These 10,000 people, these influences, these cultural leaders were taken from home into a place far, far away. Not a galaxy far, far away. But look at what Nebuchadnezzar did so cleverly. Chapter 1, verse 4, he taught them intellectually. So for three years they were skilled and or schooled rather at uh, the feet of the great learners of Babylon. Uh, chapter 1 verse 5 culturally they were given food and drink they were um, taught the skills and culture of Babylon chapter 1 verse 8 spiritually as well they were taught the religion of Babylon and so all these different means and methods Nebuchadnezzar used to influence the influences who would then go back to Jerusalem chapter 1 verse 7 there's one other element they were given new names now you can see on the screen that this is very, very significant. Every uh, Hebrew name that you can see on the left of the screen has been matched by a new name on the right hand side. On the left hand side, you can see, for example, at the top, Dani El. El means Elohim or Hananiah, Yaya means Yahweh. And so each name that you can see on the left, a Hebrew name for a Jewish person has been replaced on the right hand side by a new name given by one of Nebuchadnezzar's eunuchs who said, I want you to give them a new identity. 
I want you to teach them, culturally educate them. I want you to show them the food and the spirituality of Babylon. And I want you to give them a new name. So you can see Daniel means God has judged. But Daniel's new name, his Babylonian name, was Belteshazzar. Bel is one of the uh, Babylonian gods along with Aku and Nebu. And so it's thought that Belteshazzar means protect his life. We can see that from chapter 4, verse 8 and so on. And naming is always a big deal in the Bible. Remember what Nebuchadnezzar is trying to do. He's trying to transplant and educate and manipulate and Babylonize Jewish people by taking them away from their homeland. And now he's challenging their belief in God. He says, I'm going to give you a new name. And with a new name comes authority and purpose and identity. That, that's throughout the Bible. Naming is a big deal. So you, naming someone shows that you have authority over them. It's there in Genesis chapter 2, verse 19, where the animals are brought to Adam. And whatever he names them, that was their name. Adam has God-given authority over the animal kingdom. It's purpose as well. So when the angel appears to Joseph and Mary before the birth of Jesus, they were told, chapter 1, verse 21 of the book of Matthew, give him the name Jesus, for he would save his people from their sins. And it's identity as well. God comes to Abraham and then gives him a new name. Abraham It's a new identity. He's the father of many nations. Sarah is now Sarai. Rather, Sarai is now Sarah. And Saul is now Paul. And there are many other examples through the Bible to show that naming is about authority and purpose and identity. So imagine Daniel and his friends, age 18, 20, something like that, the scholars think. They're living for God and now they've found that they've got their ankles and their wrists with chains and they're carried off to Babylon and they are brainwashed, you could say, in all their practices and uh, cultural identity of Babylon. And now they're given a new name. So they're never called Daniel anymore. They're just called Belteshazzar and so on. Internally, the questions must have been myriad. But one of them will be, will I serve my God? says Daniel, will I serve the God of the Hebrews, the God of the whole world, the God of creation, the only God, or will I serve the God of my new name, Bel Teshazzar? Who am I? I'm living in a foreign land. I'm far away from God. Has he deserted us? And the book of Daniel explores how God enables Daniel and his friends to live by faith in a whole host of difficult and different situations. Effectively, Nebuchadnezzar has adopted these uh, 10,000 people into his family, at least these four people, by giving them new names. And this uh, authority and identity and adoption into his family is seen at the end of chapter 1. At the end of chapter 1, you see Daniel is now raised up through the ranks and he's now part of the civil service. So chapter 1, verse 20 says, In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. Or we can look at chapter 2, verse 27 that we had read to us. No wise man, enchanter, magician or diviner can explain to the king the mystery, the dream that he has asked about. So for Daniel to get to that point, it is God's clear blessing. But Daniel was schooled in all the magic and all the incantations and all the social order of Babylon. And he rose through the ranks. 
He read the Persian parchments. He went to the lessons. He, he listened carefully. He was schooled by the great minds. And yet, God enabled him to keep his distinctive biblical worldview. Daniel resolved, chapter 1, verse 8, to say no to Babylon and yes to God. He said no to believing in the false promises of the world and yes to the kingdom of God. No to Bel, yes to Yahweh. And he decided and was determined in God's strength to live a life of faith. How can you and I do that in the 21st century rather than in the 6th century BC? Here is Daniel. He's like a second Joseph figure. His life uh, began as an 18, 20 year old with chains around his wrists, and yet he rises into a position of great influence in Babylon. He's right in the heart of Babylonian government, and yet he remains his distinctiveness. So he doesn't choose to get angry. He doesn't choose to withdraw. He doesn't choose to uh, throw his toys out the pram. He chooses to serve God, and yet God blesses him, and he gets right to the centre of government. Now, how did he do that, and why perhaps could we do that too? Christianity is a religion of the cross and history testifies again and again that when the church gets more and more uh, political and cultural influence, sometimes it goes to its head and it causes great damage. It almost immediately loses its distinctiveness, the church. It gets very messy. It's, it's church and state separate sometimes is, is the way to go. And very often in the wisdom of God, he chooses to push the church to the margins of society so that once again they can stop trusting in themselves and they can trust in him. When the church is at the margins, the church faces the choice to stop relying on its own strength or to continue to do that and lose even more ground. And Daniel was a great picture of four people who put their faith in God first. And God enables them to stand. We could look at Esther, as I've said as well, as a woman of God who placed her faith in God front and centre. It was the foundation beneath her feet and she stood up for King Jesus and it changed a whole society. This uh, changing of the names is very, very significant. So let me ask you a question like Daniel would have asked in his own internal dynamic. What identifies you? Will you enable the culture to identify you and to rename you or will you stand up for Jesus? As a Christian, we have a new name on our passport. Our place of birth is no longer somewhere on earth, but it's in heaven, we could say. We've been born again by the spirit of God into the person of God. We're Christians and that's our new identity. So that truth alone enables us to stand in a hostile environment when the temperature has increased and the cultural winds are against us. Daniel was enabled to stand and to own what he believed and to stand firm and to worship the one who's changed his life and his heart. That's the meaning of the two names. Who will you stand for? Who will I stand for? But secondly and quicker, don't worry. That's the significance of the names, but what about the dream? The dream that we had read in chapter 2. Christians over the years have read this dream and have interpreted it as a bit like a key. If we can just work out what the gold and the silver and the clay and the iron stand for, then that's a key to unlocking the future. If we can understand the dream like a code, like a Dan Brown code, 
then we can work out when Jesus will return and which kingdom in history is which. Verse 12 of chapter 2 says, The meaning of the dream may well be far simpler. Rather than kings and kingdoms, perhaps it's even Nebuchadnezzar understanding it just in relation to himself. He's terrified. He's scared witless. He can't sleep a wink. He's upset because, verse 2 of chapter 2, these dreams have been occurring and no one has had the ability to interpret them. This dream is about a kingdom where he creates a statue for himself that he wants to be worshipped and he wants the world to see who he is. That's in chapter 3 for next week. But for all this great value of these metals that you can see on the screen, this picture of gold and silver, this, this great artefact up into the sky, this statuesque figure that's so impressive. Daniel, when he comes to interpret the dream, says, despite its value, look at verse 33, it has feet of clay. Your foundation, Nebuchadnezzar, is crumbling, it's flawed and it's weak. So weak that uh, not even a boulder, but even a stone will come and knock the whole thing down. And he's absolutely scared to death. He doesn't quite know what it means, but, but we do. You can interpret this individually, but you can also interpret it kind of cosmically as well. The whole Bible shows us people, individuals, but also societies who have sought to build their life on a foundation other than God. And the Bible says when it shows us individuals or whole parts of society or nations or kings or kingdoms, if you choose to not listen to the words of Jesus and build your kingdom not on the rock of the words of Jesus but on the sand, it's as if you have feet of clay. Your kingdom individually or across a society or across a nation is like building your life on sand. And one day this stone will grow to a rock and it will destroy everything that stands in its way. It's true on an individual level. An individual who seeks to build their life without reference to God, it's true of whole societies too. The book I read uh, last year by a man called Douglas Murray in uh, the book, The Madness of Crowds, he begins by noting that over the past 25 years, he says all of our grand narratives have collapsed. He uses some big words, but he says the explanations of our existence that used to be provided by religion and politics have all collapsed. And, and what's left behind is this great vacuum that's been filled by the best liberal thinking that we can do about racial equality and minority rights and women's rights. But he says, when you, when you seek to make those things your foundation, it's a bit like trying to get your balance on an upturned bar stool. It won't work. And Daniel 2 says, whether it's the 21st century, or whether it's the 6th century BC, the kingdom of God will grow and the kingdom of man will be brought low. The kingdom of uh, Babylon will be destroyed and the kingdom of God will grow into increasing significance and glory. Someday, says Daniel in his interpretation that we had read to us, God's kingdom will grow and it will grow from a stone to a boulder to a great mountain. And the whole world will see the glory of God's kingdom. You can choose to build your own kingdom so your name and reputation increases so that you will be made much of. 
All throughout the Bible, we see examples of men and women in societies. And then from the lips of Jesus, where people have done that. Or you can choose to live for the glory of God, a kingdom that will grow, that will outlast the sun. It's a kingdom not based on my glory, but on his glory. Not based on oppression, like every other world ruler um, kind of creates but also it's on the kingdom of justice that's the kingdom of God not of oppression but of justice not on war but on peace that's the meaning of the dream the kingdom of God will come in glory and peace and and majesty Nebuchadnezzar's dream is a great clear reminder to all of us that you and I are building a kingdom either we're building our own so that our name and renown would be made much of and it would increase and grow or we're involved in building God's kingdom see everybody has a foundation and if your foundation is not founded on the rock who is the Lord Jesus Christ if your foundation is not the rock which is the teaching of Jesus then your kingdom that you're building is on sand and it will fall if you want to understand what it means to be a Christian in a non-Christian world You need to look at your foundations. You need to seek with God's help to understand your motivations. Who are you living for? What kingdom are you building? What hope do you place in yourself and your own abilities? How can Daniel speak with such poise and confidence, knowing that his head will be on the block because he sees the might and beauty of Babylon, the greatest kingdom of the known world at that point? But he sees through it and he can see it as passing by and he's living for a kingdom with a solid foundation that's glory will never perish, spoil or fade away. It's names and it's a dream and it's about a rock. Thirdly, finally, it's about a rock. What's the meaning of this rock? Verse 44 of chapter 2. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. Verse 35. But that rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. This rock is an Old Testament picture of the kingdom of God. It gives us two or three things that we can see about the kingdom. Notice verse 34 and verse 45. There's a phrase that comes up. This is not cut out with hands or with human hands in other words this is a way of uh, God saying through Daniel to Nebuchadnezzar that the statue that you've made is a great work of human craftsmanship but this pebble that grows to a rock that grows to a mountain that's supernatural in its creation and sustenance this is not cut with human hands verse 33 verse 34 and verse 45 but look at the materials used in the dream verse 32 you've got gold you've got silver you've got bronze you've got iron and clay in verse 33 but even iron mixed with clay would be something that takes processing but a rock a rock or a pebble is the least valuable of all substances and yet that's the one thing that God chooses in the dream to characterize his kingdom In the eyes of the world, the kingdom of God is always poor, it's always less valuable, it's always weak. It's something that the world never thinks highly of. 
And then there's a third thing as well. We learn the kingdom of God is growing. It's gradual. It's, it's like a mustard seed from the lips of Jesus. It's like a stone growing into a mountain. It's not there yet. And so the kingdom comes in two stages. It came first when Jesus came to serve. It came in weakness. He didn't wipe away all evil in the world at once, did he? But at the second coming of Jesus, the kingdom of God will come in total power and it will fill the whole world. Friends, this is so important for Christians, for you and me to see and to understand as we live in a hostile environment, an increasingly hostile society that's pluralistic, that's uh, secular, that's very focused in on the individual. Because when you see this, when you understand the, uh, the dream that God gave the interpretation to Daniel to share with Nebuchadnezzar, it gives you a poise. It gives you a spiritual core strength. It gives you a perspective that the kingdoms of the world will fall, but God's kingdom will grow and will stand to the end. It enables you to uh, not retreat into a community that you think will be better and safer. It enables you not to get... Uh, proud and arrogant and speak loudly it enables you to be humble it enables you to engage and to stand as you stand on the rock who is jesus christ because you know your foundation like esther did like daniel did because you know the certain future that abraham saw hebrews 11 verse 10 it describes abraham as looking forward he's looking forward to a city with foundations whose builder and maker is god and daniel could see that and so he could speak with God-centered confidence, living in faith in God to Nebuchadnezzar. And here's something that's interesting. We've seen about names and we've seen about dreams and we've seen about rock. And, and each one of those is explained by Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus Christ, he had two names. He was the son of God, but he's also human. He was the real son of God, but he came with flesh and blood. He became a real human being. Jesus Christ in the dream. He, he's the real dazzling figure. He's the only one who is gold, as it were, from top to bottom. He has no feet of clay. He's the only one you can really worship. And of course, Jesus Christ is the rock. He's the stone the builders rejected. But he's now become the cornerstone for the whole new world. How can you stand up for Jesus in a hostile world? skeptical about what you say and your motivations if you understand Jesus in those ways then you can live a life like Daniel you can live a life like him trusting God and living by faith in a hostile world